Hey, everybody, this is Jason Rosenbaum, the co-host of the Politically Speaking podcast, and this is the 200th episode that features a guest. Naturally, we're very excited about this milestone, and we're doing something a little bit special. If you look in the interior of the posts for this podcast, you'll find a link to a 25-question quiz. It's a pretty difficult quiz because the top three answer-goers, so to speak, will get their choice of either a tote bag, a blanket, or a mug. What it deals with is not only the amount of certain types of guests, but also obscure Easter eggs and also the bumper music to this show. We didn't want this to be a particularly easy quiz because we don't want to give everybody who takes it a tote bag, a blanket, or a mug. So I hope you've been paying attention all these years because if you have been, you're going to be handsomely rewarded. On behalf of myself and Joe Manis, Thank you for making this show the longest episodic podcast that deals with Missouri politics. And now we feature our guest, State Senator Scott Sifton, on the latest edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis. And our special guest... State Senator Scott Sifton. Joining us for the fourth time, by the way. I believe so. We will get to why that's significant at the end of the show. <laughs> no, we're not not on the air. Not on the air. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming in today. For our listeners, um, give us a sense of what your district is. Well, the uh, and, and forgive me, I uh, I came here uh, directly from the funeral for Officer Blake Snyder. So at, at least at this point, um, unfortunately, the first Senate district is marked by tragedy. The uh, Officer Snyder was shot and killed last week in Green Park, which is in the district. Um, as many folks uh, might have seen, we actually have a former state representative who lives right across the street from where it happened. Um, and uh, have to say between... Uh, the vigil last week, the um, uh, visitation last night at Cutis there on Gravoy, uh, the procession this morning in Afton, and the services in Chesterfield, um, just um, awed by the outpouring of support for Officer Snyder and his family. Um, you know, he leaves behind a, a wife, uh, a son, uh, a brother, and, and actually a, a brother-in-law who, who serves and uh, as well, and eulogized um, his brother-in-law and um, mentioned how he had told him that he wrote a hymn. His brother-in-law had written a hymn for for fallen officers and rude the day that he would ever actually have to say it. And, of course, it turned out that today was that day. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first time that he would say it was for his uh, brother-in-law. Um, grateful for the support of the community. Grateful for groups like the Backstoppers that help families of fallen law enforcement uh, officers at, at times like this um, and, and going forward. Um, I just hope that uh, moving forward from this, uh, hopefully we can, we can avoid senseless tragedies like this going forward. Well, I appreciate very, very, very sad. It's very sad. I appreciate you saying that because I have a, a, a f- I appreciate you saying that 
I know that a lot of people with the St. Louis County Police Department have had a rough week or two, Yes, to put it mildly. Well, to have the presidential debate come in the middle of all this, which is pretty much an all-hands-on-deck experience for law enforcement as well, between the death last week and everything this week, it's just been a lot lot of officers in St. Louis County that haven't had a lot of sleep. So so our hearts go out to uh, Officer Snyder's family and to everybody at the St. Louis County Police Department over this tragedy. We brought Senator Sipton in because the first senatorial district, which takes in, I would say, most of South St. Louis County that's unincorporated, Webster Groves, Brentwood, a number of other municipalities, I guess, in South Central St. Louis. Um, It's going to be one of the most competitive state Senate races in the state, kind of by default. There aren't that many. There's one in Columbia. There may be one in the Kansas City area. But this is definitely the most competitive legislative race in the St. Louis region, through no fault of your own, by the way. It's just the nature of how the district is drawn. This district is one in which no candidate of either party has won as much as 51% of the vote yet this century. And it would be different if there had ever been third-party candidates. It's always been one Democrat and one Republican with the winner getting 50% plus and the loser getting 49% plus. And just so our listeners know that... um, if if you're listening to this, we have already recorded uh, a separate show with the Republican, uh, Dr. Randy Jotty, and that will be running either. That's running separately. But um, just so you know, well, when you hear this, we've already done it. So the two gentlemen have not heard each other. So they don't know what the other one said. So we want to give the the people of the first district a sense of who these candidates are and what they'll fight for in the Missouri Senate. We've had you on the show before, but for people that don't follow state politics that closely or may not even know that you're the first district state senator, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into politics. Sure, sure. Well, I uh, uh, came to I, I'm a Kansas City transplant. Came to St. Louis almost 20 years ago, uh, following law school. Uh, and got involved in the community right away. Um, started as the uh, mock trial attorney coach for the Afton High mock trial team, and uh, they the, the school district uh, was in the process of trying to pull together resources to upgrade facilities and, and help their teachers. I got involved in that effort, and um, the uh, the school board president at the time, who's a, a Republican, non- nonpartisan office, but he's a Republican. Uh, had worked with me on that, and uh, he happened to be the only lawyer on the board as well, and his predecessor had been one also, and uh, he uh, he uh, approached me and, and asked me to run for his seat, mentioned he was going to be leaving the board, and as it turns out, actually wound up in the Bush administration. <laughs> uh, I think he was under Secretary of Treasury by the time President Bush left office. Wow. Uh, in any event, uh, so I, I ran uh, for, for the school board and served for nine years in that role. Um, including a couple terms as board president. Uh, Afton schools uh, did really well uh, during those years. They've done even better since. It's been wonderful to see how that school district has done. Uh, And then uh, uh, following that, I was at a little bit of a crossroads and uh, decided with uh, Representative Pat Yeager being term limited uh, from the Missouri House, uh, uh, received encouragement to run for that seat. Uh, I did, and I, I won in, in 2010, a year that wasn't exactly a banner year for, for Democrats. If I'm not mistaken, though, didn't you run for state representative before 2010, too? I had an 02, yes. Yeah, so, yes. and you were unsuccessful in that contest, but, and I think I've asked you this before, but one of the 
things I've seen in Missouri politics is people learn from races that they lose. Did you learn anything from that contest that made you more successful in subsequent years? Learned a lot. Learned a lot. I mean, as uh, I mean, as uh, I mean, there are folks in all sorts of offices in the state who will talk about uh, a, a race that they lost that uh, that uh, helped get them where they are, if you will. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of a particular statewide office holder who's about to leave office, but um, in any event. Uh, Learned a lot. Uh, learned a lot about the community. Learned a lot about just the the uh, uh, the sort of blocking and tackling of going door to door and and meeting with voters and hearing about concerns from folks and and uh, of course the more of that you do, the more you listen to people, the more you hear what the community that you're in really thinks about the issues. It it also helps to inform your own views. Uh, and I I can say that over uh, over the time that I've been involved. Uh, my views are are considerably more, uh, I wouldn't say nuanced, but um, considerably better informed today than they were uh, at that time. And that's uh, frankly because I've had thousands of conversations with thousands of people uh, over the time that I've been involved. Now, what's interesting is that you had uh, defeated uh, Republican Jim Lemke, who had been one of the uh, rebel rousers in the Senate on the Republican side. Rebel okay. rousers is a, f- a good word. For yes, him. and I mean, I mean, <laughs> no that, such formal caucus. And I mean that in respective <laughs> sense. Well, in the last few uh, sessions, especially at the end, you often have played a similar role, although your personality is different on the Democratic side, as far as leading or being key figures in certain filibusters uh, to block key pieces of legislation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? There, there are three kinds of issues that we take up in the Missouri Senate. We take up issues where sometimes with a lot of work, consensus can be achieved, and a lot of those uh, bills will come to a vote, and the vote will be 34 to nothing or 32 to 2 or 30 to 4. Um, we also have issues where uh, consensus can't be achieved, but compromise can. And sometimes that's along a party line basis. As often as not, uh, some of the compromises we reach are are between members of the majority party. Um, And then there are the issues where, try as though we we, we might, uh, we cannot reach consensus and we cannot reach compromise. And again, sometimes those are partisan issues. More often than not, I would say they, they tend to be regional issues. Um, but uh, the, the question at those times is to make sure, look, we're, we're not going to get uh, we're, we're not going to get to an agreement on on right to work. We're just not. Uh, we, we may I mean, try as though we might. It's just not going to happen. Uh, there, there just aren't any pliable votes on that issue, Democratic or Republican. Uh, and, and that's one example. We weren't going to get to an agreement this year on whether discrimination against same-sex couples should be legal in Missouri. We just weren't going to get to agreement uh, or compromise. Um, the key for the body, and this might be where I differ from from rabble-rousers, uh, okay. the, the key for the body is to make sure that when we can't at least find a way to agree to disagree, that the functionality of the body and the integrity of how the Senate is meant to function is preserved and kept intact. And now just a piece of history here. Um, the Missouri Senate, as the Missouri House, is heavily populated by Republicans, and they hold veto-proof majorities in both chambers. On most so, issues. Yeah, on most issues. So especially in the state Senate, it often fa- a controversial measure, if it gets through the House, it falls on this small group of Democrats, if the Democrats are against the bill, 
to sort of block it. And so you're you're one of the key leaders of that. Well, or sometimes on a small group of Republicans to block it, depending on the issue. I mean, take take an issue like prescription drug monitoring. Right. Okay. Uh, I think that might actually pass 33 to 1. If not, it would be 31 to 3. But we've not been able to get to compromise on that issue either, and that's not because of Democrats. So it, it, it depends on the okay, issue. Right. But um, the, the, the point is um, we need, in my view, uh, in my view, I think it is important uh, for all parties, for our constituencies, and for the state to, to do all we can to, to try to find, um, if not common ground, at least ground upon which we can agree to disagree. That's not always possible. Uh, we work to try to keep the instances where that's the case rare. But the real question is, uh, at some point, if, if might makes right, what, what, what are going to be the ramifications of that for every other issue we take up? And I would argue that how we handle that is actually maybe more important than how we handle any one issue, no matter how important it is. Well, that was going to be my question, because... There was, I believe, a seven or eight year period in the Missouri Senate where they did not forcibly stop filibusters. It's commonly known as calling the previous question. And basically what that does is stop a filibuster. And in the last three or four years, it's become increasingly common. In fact, this last veto session, I think it was used twice. Yep. So that has to be very disconcerting for Democrats like you, or Democrats like Jill Shoup. Are Democrats like Stephen Weber, if he wins his race, that you guys basically, as a collective, spend literally millions of dollars to try to turn these previously Republican seats blue, only to come into a chamber where arguably you have less power over controversial issues than before. I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on that, because it seems like people in caucuses that were even smaller than yours had more power to stop things than you do now. The, the previous, well, I I would actually disagree with that. I, I think we still have that power, and I think we demonstrated it this year with SGR 39, even though there was a PQ of that issue. Mm -hmm. The way it, it happened was such that um, even though SGR 39 survived the first round, it was mortally wounded going forward, Fair and enough. the business community had time to galvanize against it, and the House found a way to make it make it go away. Yes. Uh, but of the five times the previous question has been used, three were in veto session. And I have to say, and I, I said this after the first time it happened, um, I don't think veto session is the place to be filibustering. I mean, I, and look, I, the, the, the two issues that drew pre pre previous questions this year, I disagreed as strongly as any Democrat with those bills. We're talking about the gun bill and the voter ID bill. Uh, but uh, if we were going to uh, if we were going to filibuster those bills with the intent of killing them, that should have happened in regular session. And, there, and to, to be sure, there was a lot of discussion about those Didn't you filibuster bills. the 72-hour the waiting period during veto session? That was done. And, and, and I, I will tell you, the only thing that made that situation different, and, and it was a lesson learned in hindsight for, I think, everybody on both sides of the aisle, mm -hmm. the only reason that was done is because the Republicans were going to lose the votes at 6 a.m. Right. And, and the issue was forced, and because— um, because of, uh, frankly, the way that issue had come to get that far in the process, uh, there were members of my caucus who felt strongly that they needed to die on the sword. And I'll, I'll say this, uh, and I'll say this to Democrats, uh, I don't think veto session is the place to go dying on the sword. I mean, every those three issues were all issues that were part of discussions in regular session. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though 
nobody like probably nobody on either side liked the, the final resolution. Um, that's not a reason to go uh, trying to scuttle the deal on the back end and veto session. The other two issues we've had previous question motions on were SGR 39, which didn't pass into law, and right to work, which didn't pass into law. Yeah. Um, I think it's a it's a very different thing um, if you see a change in law as a result of a previous question regular session. We have not seen that on my watch. And so from that standpoint, I could argue that even though it has been tested, the, the proper functioning of the Senate has not been um, irrevocably altered at this point. I want to talk about right to work, which is shorthand for a policy that would bar unionized entities from forcing employees to pay union dues if that entity has agreed to organize. I believe I got that description correctly. Well, I would say it's shorthand for paying people less and not just unionized workers. I mean, we states that are right to right. work pay on average 15% less than states that don't. Right. But I was just, uh, it, uh, the term right to work often gets thrown around a lot without people explaining actually what it does. Exactly. And it's a very clinical yeah. explanation. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's very wordy, but it's important to explain. So it's actually a really important issue in your district. Absolutely. There, there are a lot of people who either were members of organized labor or are members of organized labor. I know that your opponent in 2012, Jim Lemke, was opposed to right to work, yes. even as a Republican. Yes. And um, I just want to get a sense of how important you think it is in this particular contest. Well, let's let's not make any mistake about it. What voters do in the first district on November 8th, and, and we're talking – about a district where less than one out of 100 voters have decided each of the last three races in this seat. The decision that voters make in this race will very likely determine whether this is a right-to-work state or whether we continue to be a state where we have, um, frankly, better wage-earning powers for wage-earner, better wage-earning powers for, for working families than, than right-to-work states do. And so if you are um, a working family living paycheck to paycheck, Trying to make it, uh, you know, trying to make it on a month-to-month -month basis, scraping by, whether you belong to a union or not. Uh, how you vote in this race should be very well informed by whether you want your wages to go down. And I, and I want to explain why that's the case. And this is the case even if Coster becomes governor. If you looked at uh, the vote total in the Senate on right to work, I believe it was what. 21 Republicans voted for it, maybe 20. I don't remember. I think actually it's higher than that now. Okay. Since Bill Eigel won his seat and he's he's favored to win his race, um, he replaces somebody who was opposed to right to work. And he's Dempsey. in St. Charles. He's in St. Charles. If for some reason you lose, and we haven't talked to Randy Jotty yet, but if he is for right to work, you have the 23 to override a veto, basically. But, uh, yeah, and that's true of the Columbia seat as well. Yes. And that's true of the Columbia yeah. seat as well. But 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 that I just wanted to explain well, to our listeners why what he was talking about. Yeah, and 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 make no mistake about it. Um, and I, because I've seen it happen, e even with uh, junior and and freshman Republicans who claim to be labor friendly coming in, um, as a freshman Republican in the Senate, um, it is incredibly difficult to buck your leadership. Incredibly difficult. And the, uh, uh, you know, I think on most issues, the, the, the question the question for voters uh, in the first district is, do you want uh, a 10th vote in an effective and responsible minority that is not going to be unduly obstructionist, but will make sure that we don't go too far to the right? Or do you just want the 25th or 26th yes vote on most of the agenda that's already going to pass anyway? 
but that could really make the difference on some of the issues that really divide us. And just so some of our listeners know, and I'm, I'm not taking sides on this, but this particular election could be very crucial on this because you have several major donors in the state who have been putting a lot of money into the primary and now into the general. I mean, these are donors who are in favor of right to work. And there's another issue on the ballot that we're doing a separate podcast on about the um, proposed amendment to restrict campaign donations. That would not affect this election, but could affect afterwards. A lot of people feel that there's a lot of extra money being poured into these elections because this may be the last time that those major donors can have such a fi- large financial impact. Directly. Individual, yeah, directly, directly into individual races. This is just a backdrop. The, I'm, I'm just explaining why there is a lot of attention on it in this election. So, I mean, with that backdrop in place, how are you kind of navigating what, what could be a tough election for you in a tough district where an opponent may have a lot of money being spent against you? Uh, we, we do it the same way we've always done it. We work hard every day. We knock on doors. We talk to voters. We hear what their concerns are, and uh, we do what we need to do to make sure that we, we are able to at least answer uh, in the mailbox and on the airwaves. But um, but I'm uh, you know it was a long, hot summer. <laughs> Uh, and I, I was out just about every day uh, hearing what concerns are on the minds of the people that I represent in Jefferson City. And what did you hear? What what are their key concerns? Uh, you still hear a lot of concern about jobs in the economy. I mean, we're not in the heart of the downturn where we were uh, when I ran and uh, first ran for the legislature in mm-hmm. 2010, where I, every single day I was talking to somebody who was either unemployed or had an immediate family member who was. But there, there's still a lot of concern about that. Uh, a lot of concern about education and, and trying to make sure that uh, our uh, public schools can continue to uh, prepare uh, students for the future. Um, and a lot of concern about public safety, and, and that includes uh, firearms policy. I get asked about that a lot. We passed a, uh, a, a gun bill uh, this year that I strongly opposed, that law enforcement strongly opposed. Uh, I, I will tell you, I was, I was at the procession. Uh, for Officer Snyder this morning, and the woman I was standing next to uh, uh, has an ownership interest in one of the gun stores around. She strongly opposed this year's gun bill because it removed uh, safety and training requirements for people to, to conceal and carry. Uh, I mean, you, you've got gun vendors who don't like this legislation. Um, and, and my constituents are concerned about it. I get asked about it a lot. Now, what do you see as the key issues between you and Randy Randy Jotty? Well, there are several. Um, I, I think I think at the end of the day, he comes down at a different place um, on on guns. I think he comes down at a different place on right to work, uh, and then there's then there's uh, uh, women's rights and reproductive rights and SGR thirty nine uh, LGBT equality. Uh, he is a self-branded socially conservative Republican who is unwilling to compromise on uh, what the Supreme Court has recognized to be a woman's right to choose for herself and, um, you know, takes it to a place that's a lot farther than a lot of people who would just say that they're against abortion. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are bright line contrasts. It's interesting, and we've talked about this before, but there have been prior Democratic candidates in the first district who were socially conservative and de-emphasized what you were just saying. You have not ever done that. I think you basically campaigned basically on what you believe, even if it may not be in line with everybody in the district. I mean, 
Is that an accurate philosophy, what, have I, what I just yeah, explained? I, I believe women should make their own decisions and government should not make them for them. I mean, it seems like this election in particular, a lot of focus, for various reasons, is on women. I mean, from the president on down, presidential contest on down. So my question is, um, what sort of trickle-down do you think that will have on your race, if any? You know, it's uh, uh, the, the candid answer is that um, I, I, uh, neither of these candidates are likely to poll ahead of the rest of their party. Uh, both of them are running several points behind the rest of their party right you're, now. You're talking Clinton and Trump. Yeah, yeah but both presidential candidates. Uh, neither are terribly uh, popular in my district. That's just reality. I'm, I'm okay. a very strong Hillary and very strong and very proud Hillary Clinton supporter. Uh, but, um, you know, I think. I think Donald Trump's disapproval rating in my district is something like uh, 58%. Really? Now, see, that's interesting because the first district takes in a lot of uh, South, South County. County territory that Republicans had been relying on to be the, as places where a lot of Trump supporters, particularly we're talking uh, middle class, uh, uh, working class men, white men, um, in South County and in Jefferson County, that they're hoping that's going to propel um, some of the races like your own, but also on a state level. I'm just interesting, since you've yeah. been going door to door, yeah. what are you hearing? Look, if it wasn't obvious before last week with the revelation from the hot mic and all that, I, it's very clear now. Donald Trump is too extreme for my constituency. He just is. I mean, he, he'll certainly have some supporters, but... Um, um, he would take us to a place that my voters in my district don't want to go. Um, and uh, on the other on the other side of the equation, you have um, Secretary Clinton, who, um, you know, I have I have to say, I mean, I <laughs> I turned 18 in 1992. I, I didn't know what a Democratic president looked like. <laughs> I, mean, I, I still the first election I ever remember was the day that Reagan defeated Carter. That's the first election I have any recollection of at all. I was in first grade. Um, I mean, my son is older now than I was then. <laughs> I'm glad you reinforced that. In 1980, I was actually, yeah. Missouri was a bellwether state, and I was actually already working at the Post-Dispatch and dealing with that yeah. race. But the, the point is, I, I started college in 1992. It was the first race I got, got to vote in, and um, for the eight years that ensued, um, I also saw a balanced budget for the first time. Uh, in my lifetime, I saw um, uh, uh, a, a very positive global environment. We saw uh, uh, basically an economic revolution with the advent of the Internet and all that that brought to change commerce and all that that did to grow the economy. Um, we saw some really great times in the 1990s, and I have every confidence that even though I think in many ways now our challenges are greater, uh, perhaps our divisions are even deeper that uh, Secretary Clinton has an understanding of what it's going to take to, to lead our country through some very challenging times. I, I don't want to overgeneralize here because your district is diverse geographically. It's even diverse ethnically. There's a lot of Bosnians that live yes. there as well. But I've spent a lot of time at St. Louis County Council, and I've had at least two or three experiences, and one of them you were involved in, mm -hmm. where there's been a major development where a lot of South County residents, particularly in Oakville or Melville, come out in droves and just express anger at, at things. The, 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 the things that I'm, I'm alluding to is either an apartment complex or a senior living facility. And I think that there is this reputation of South St. Louis County people, especially in the 
unincorporated area of being very passionate and being at times upset at government when they when they do things wrong. And I think that that's the reason why maybe there's an assumption that because Donald Trump is also kind of harnessing a lot of frustration with government and a lot of people in South County often get frustrated with government, that there'd be a natural connection there. How am I wrong? Well, look, I, the development you're talking about on, on, on Telegraph was out of scale for the community. It was too large. It was right next to another facility. Uh, neighbors were not uh, consulted. And basically, the thing got through the, far enough along in the process before people really even knew what was going on there uh, that people were appropriately upset with it. And that was just, I mean, forgive me, bad local zoning and planning. And and I don't, I, I certain, I mean, I certainly don't fault the folks in Oakville who were concerned about that. I was by their side at the county council arguing their case. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a different thing from what I hate to say. It, uh, what we're seeing at the national level with this Trump guy is a completely different thing. Yeah. And how much of an impact, though, do you think the um, turmoil at the top of the ticket is going to have either on your race or statewide? You know, I, I well, I think at the moment uh, the wind is at our back. I mean, I, I think that um, I think that people are seeing Trump's extremism for what it is. An unprecedented number of Republicans have spoken out publicly against him, not just at the national level, but we're seeing it locally now. I mean, uh, Congresswoman Ann Wagner and I don't agree on everything, but uh, both of us agree that we don't want to see Donald Trump as our next president, or at least she can't s- support him. So I, you know, um, I. Uh, I think that the consensus is growing that that um, Donald Trump is just not the direction our country needs to go in. Now, obviously, you're focusing on your race right now, but there's also all the Democratic statewide candidates that could affect your abilities in the Senate, whether it be Chris Coster in the governor's mansion or even Russ Carnahan as lieutenant governor. There, There is a possibility that if you have a Democratic lieutenant governor, that may help your cause there. How do you see the rest of the ticket doing um, based off the national environment and basically based on how they're organized at the moment. You know, it's it's interesting, uh, Jason. I actually caught uh, a glimpse uh, online the other night of your interview with Congressman Jason Smith after the debate on Sunday, and yes. he, ma- he made the point, and it's a very good one, that in 2012 you had Missourians vote for Mitt Romney for president and Republican Mitt Romney for president, Democrat Claire McCaskill for U.S. Senate, Democrat Jay Nixon for governor, and Republican Peter Kinder for lieutenant governor, splitting the top two lines on both the federal and statewide uh, races. Um, and and so in that regard, I would say that uh, I think Missourians, uh, at least at the margins, are, and, and I think um, deeper than that, uh, are going to make the call based on, on the candidates more than the parties. Uh, certainly a number of people will vote the party, but I, I, I think my district is one where people vote the candidate more. Um, Chris Coster is running a great race. Chris Coster has uh, done a fantastic job as attorney general now for eight years, and I, I expect that he is going to win handily November 8th, and I anticipate that Russ Carnahan will as well. I want to ask about, I know we always talk about Governor more than lieutenant governor. But if if you do have a Democratic lieutenant governor, there is an assumption that he may provide kind of a check against the Republican majority through by the fact that he is also the presiding officer of the Senate. Right. Now, this is probably more detailed than our listeners care to know, but the current lieutenant governor, Peter Kinder, he often- He's a Republican. He's a Republican. And since the Senate is Republican, he often- hands off to other Republicans to preside. So it's really hasn't been a major issue with that. Do you anticipate that could be beneficial to someone like you if he is lieutenant governor? 
Yeah, I, I anticipate that he would. And, and to be clear, uh, uh, Governor Kinder has presided most most days in the Senate, at least uh, to some extent. Uh, but uh, yeah, it matters who presides. Um, I, I think that um, we have seen uh, fair umpiring from the dais for the most part in the Senate. But believe me, uh, if I think I don't see it, I, I'll be the first person that people hear that from <laughs> yeah. if, the, if there's a concern with it. But I think for the most part, there's been an effort um, um, by the majority to at least have a fair floor, and, and, and I appreciate that. Uh, I, I think that uh, Democrats uh, have largely enjoyed a fair floor in the Senate in my time there with a, a couple of moments that none of us are proud of notwithstanding. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, Congressman Carnahan, um, I believe, will make a fantastic lieutenant governor. I think he'll, 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 he'll bring to the process the same fair floor that we've seen. Uh, I, I do think in, in uh, again, it's those moments where we can't agree to, to disagree where it really matters uh, who's presiding to make sure that the rights of the minority are preserved, not not abused, but preserved. Do you think he'll get bored presiding so much? Uh, I, I, I would not describe <laughs> Missouri Senate proceedings as boring. That, I, that was not well, a serious well, question. Well, in fact, I was going to ask you, I mean, yeah, here you are going into your, uh, you know, seeking a second term. You briefly were running for Missouri Attorney General, but looking at the Senate now, what, I mean, if you're talking to someone about why you want to be reelected, what is it that you believe you bring to the chamber, and what do you think is most important about the chamber. I mean, sure. One, one, one. I'm going to talk about what we've gotten done in the Senate in a minute here, but I will say um, one thing I'll bring, frankly, is a law license with some experience behind it. Uh, today, there are three practicing lawyers in the Missouri Senate. The other two are leaving, and if I'm not back, depending on what happens in Columbia, there's a very real chance that you may not have a single practicing attorney in the Missouri Senate next year. And I don't. Really? I don't think we should have 34, but I don't think we should have zero either. Um, but but as far as what we've gotten accomplished and what we hope to accomplish, uh, the answer is a lot. Um, you know, I, I uh, the majority of my legislation uh, begins with conversations with constituents. Uh, you know, I had a, a mother uh, approach me uh, a couple of years back uh, who was concerned about um, uh, her son uh, getting the, the help he needed for dyslexia. Uh, in, in the local school, uh, and and this mother was really really frustrated, and of course, as events subsequently shown, um, had a whole lot of other parents with the same experience who were also very frustrated. And we didn't we didn't pass a bill uh, to to address that issue. We passed four. Uh, so uh, we we now have a statewide uh, dyslexia coordinator, the Department of Elementary Secondary Education, who coordinates 525 school districts' policies and efforts on dyslexia education. We've passed comprehensive statewide screening for, for, for children at a critical uh, juncture in their education. And we now have a legislative task force that's going to look at ways we can try to provide the services they need in a way that's as cost-effective as possible. Uh, but there have been others. I mean, I, uh, Jason, I saw you mention this morning, uh, you, you saw that we, we have our, uh, our first ad up. Yes. Uh, Another similar situation. Uh, those parents lost their son at an area daycare uh, in his sleep, and uh, uh, both they and, and uh, the, the uh, child's grandmother uh, approached me, showed me the report from the department on what had happened, uh, the investigation of what had happened uh, with their son's death, and uh, they were determined uh, to, to get something done to try to make this a safer uh, state for 
infant children to sleep in a daycare, and we got that done. Uh, today, our state's daycares have to adhere to American Academy of, pa- of Pediatric Safe Sleep Guidelines. We, we made that happen. It was an, uh, I filed it as a bill. It uh, was able to get it across the finish line as an amendment to uh, another senator's bill. Uh, we, we got uh, uh, th- this year, in my own name, we, we got a bill passed to modernize child support enforcement. So I, I focused, I mean, I'm, I'm a father of two young children. We've, we focused on family and children issues and, of course, education uh, uh, be- between my background on, on the school board and also what has happened with, with the state school transfer law and the Supreme Court decision interpreting that. It's impacted my constituents in Melville and Kirkwood most directly with uh, with Riverview, but has the potential, uh, depending on what the future holds for, for the public schools in the city of St. Louis, to impact every uh, constituent uh, th- th- uh, that I represent and every school district that I represent directly. And so we've worked very hard across the aisle. Uh, we've come up with two, I, I think, very fair bipartisan compromises on school uh, on the school transfer law. Uh, we have not been able to secure uh, a, a, a gubernatorial signature yet. I'm optimistic that hopefully we can next year. That'll be my final question, because there is an assumption that, although he told me that he's opposed to vouchers and he's not a, a, a proponent of school choice, Attorney General Coster... Who is the Democratic nominee yeah, for governor. There is an assumption that he may be more flexible on that school transfer bill than Governor Nixon was, even even though, again, it's not like Coster is a proponent of, of vouchers or, or, or anything like that. What, what's kind of your thought on that? Well, uh, to, to be clear, I didn't like everything that was in the bill. There were, uh, in one, there was uh, uh, charter language, and in the another, there was uh, voucher language that I had that I had the same objections to. And as that's the governor. what I was referring to. Yeah. Was, it, was a, it was a provision that would have allowed someone to transfer to a non-sectarian yeah. private school, but yeah. continue. Yeah, the, yeah, it, it, yeah, to be clear, non-sectarian private school within unaccredited districts right. uh, only, not, not within, for instance, the school districts that I I represent. But the, the, the point is, I, I had that objection to the bill as well. Uh, from the you know risk-benefit analysis for my first state Senate district, we needed that bill to become law. Uh, the governors have to have a broader point of view. I've got 182,000 people whose interest I have to put ahead of the other 5.8 million Missourians if they're in conflict. And on that bill, my constituents needed something done, and, and I will continue to work with uh, uh, senators across the aisle and wh- whoever our next governor is uh, to make sure that we have a policy that works for all children, including children, especially children in unaccredited districts who need better educational options than they have today, but also for children in receiving districts who have who have concerns at stake as well. Very good, and we appreciate you coming back on the show. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I. I-E-S. And how would people find out more about your campaign, either on social media or otherwise? Sure. Uh, the website is scottsifton.com. The Twitter handle, which you advised me of uh, initially, is at uh, Scott Sifton. And uh, we also have a Facebook page. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. So long.